Ephesians chapter 5. So, so far in the book of Ephesians, there's kind of two themes. Chapter 1 through 3 is the wealth, wealth that we've been given in Christ. He explains to these uh, Ephesian believers, because you are a child of God now, because you have been given a relationship with the holy God, your creator, through the sacrifice of what Jesus has done, you have deposited into your account a wealth that you're not even aware of yet. It takes time to soak it in. The fact that God has made you a child of God through what Jesus has done on no, nothing that you can earn on your own is an amazing thing. But sometimes when you don't do something to earn what you have, you don't always go check the bank account to see if it's there. For instance, every week at work, they deposit our checks, right, Cindy? And as they do that, they, they give us a paper check, which <laughs> reminds us, but I, I don't know why they give us a paper check. It's in there, right? But, but they give us a paper check, and we know after working for a week, hey, I deserve that, right? But if you didn't go to work any day during the week, and at the end of the week, somebody walked up to you and said, hey, here's your check. It's been given to you. All you have to do is receive it. You just have to put it in the bank. You wouldn't, you'd be like, well, I didn't do anything to earn it. I, I, you know, and, and many people would be like, sweet, I'll take it, you know, right? But many people would be like, if I didn't earn it, why are you giving it to me? I don't want to take, I'm not, I'm not here for handouts. You know, we kind of have a pride issue in that. But the Lord has done this. He has made a deposit into our account that we couldn't work our entire life and earn. We couldn't work an entire 10 lifetimes and earn it. And so he explains to us in the first three chapters the wealth that we have because of our relationship with Jesus. It's not about what you know, it's about who you know, right? It's about what he has done. And then in chapter 4, he makes this shift. It's no longer about our wealth, but it, now it's about our walk. And you'll see this word over and over and over again, walk. Well, think about walking. It's something that you do that it, it, it doesn't happen quickly. You know, say if you wanted to walk from here to Farmington, it would be one step after another. It would get boring. And, and many times you feel like, I'm never going to get there. But walking is something that happens steadily. Think about the tortoise and the hare. They both race each other. One takes off, they both take off at the same time, but the rabbit, seemingly, because he's sprinting, gets really far, but then he stops for a break because he's like, what do I got to do? But the tortoise, he just keeps steadily walking, never stopping, because he doesn't get worn out. It's what he was made for. And he ends up actually getting to the end before the one sprinting. It's kind of like Highway 221. When I get on that thing in the morning, there is always somebody that passes me. Always. I won't mention any names because some of you guys are related to him. But as he's driving, he always passes me in the summertime. It's like he leaves like three minutes after me and he gets there one, or excuse me, three minutes after me and gets there one minute before me. You know, and, and so many times we do, we get in a rush. We're driving down the road where somebody in front of us is going so slow. They're going speed limit. They're not going slow. They're going speed limit. And then we thinking, I'm going to make up a bunch of time. You know, and we pass that person. Well, next thing you know, we're at that stoplight right there at, by Dairy Queen. And we pull up and guess up who we pull up behind? That same guy. We got there at the same time. And we risked everyone's life, including our own, to do it. So that's the case. We, we need to walk. This faith is a walk. It's not a sprint. It's a long-distance run. And so in Ephesians 4, we talked about the fact that God's called us to walk in unity. 
And he says, do not grieve the Spirit. He talks about interaction with one another, the fact that we're a new man in Christ. And then this week, we ended, we landed last week on verse 1 and 2 of Ephesians 5. Kind of did a little segue, but he says there, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Now, many of you might have noticed that this is the verse that God gave me for our church. Be imitators of God. That word imitator means to mimic. It's what your children do when they're young. They mimic you. You know, my daughter, her favorite thing to do is, number one, get on my motorcycle and sit there and go, and get in my Jeep and and work the steering wheel and turn all my stuff on and off. Every morning in the summer, especially, if I go get in my Jeep, I don't know what's going to be on. It could be the windshield wipers. It could be the headlights. Battery might not work. But she's just enjoying it. Why is she in the Jeep doing that? Because she's seen me doing it. She knows I enjoy it. So she's in there playing. She's mimicking us. Now that can be a really exciting thing when you want your children to be like you until they do something you don't realize you do. You know, I've seen many children, you know, when I was, I have got a a picture of myself walking around in a diaper holding a Schaefer's beer. What was that? Why was I doing that? Because everybody around me was. I was walking around with a beer. Now a lot of people are like, I can't believe you got a picture of that. I'm like, that was my raising, you know. We had out the Schaefer's. Grandpa got it in the garage, you know. Go off and drink it by himself. And so that's what I had seen, and so that's what I was mimicking. And we become, whether we want to or not, young ones, we become like our parents. Some of us that are a little bit older, we already know that, and we hate that. We're like, well, I'm not like my parents. That was the worst thing ever. Well, think about it this way. There are some redeeming qualities in your parents, whether you want to admit it or not. But that said, we become like our parents. It's God's design, by the way. So that should make us think about that, whether you want to or not. And, and, and parents, we need to think about that because that is God's design. So if you're seeing things in your kids that you don't like, recognize most of them came from you more than likely. You can't blame their friends for everything. You know, oh, they're just hanging out with the wrong crowd. Yeah, you. You know, <laughs> my children are already doing that, and my oldest one's three. And she is so much like me. When she, something doesn't work, she's putting on a pair of pants. And I'm like, why is she like that? Then I catch myself putting on a pair of pants, and I do the same thing. Why don't these fit anymore? You know? So my point is, is that we become like our parents. He says, therefore, be imitators of God because you are his dear children. Now, how do we become a child of God? Being, being a child of God is not something that every person is. I've heard so many people, like, we're all God's children. No, we're not. You will not see the kingdom of God unless you were born again of the Spirit. The Spirit bears witness in us. But if you've not been born again, you are not a child of God. That's not how it works. You, you are a child of Adam, which is, it didn't end so well for Adam and Eve. But you are not a child of God unless you've been born again, born of the Spirit. And so, walk in love. He says, if you're going to be imitators of God as dear children, and this is how you can do it. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. So this love is not just a, ooh, I love him, or he's cute. That's not love. That is lust. We want to call it love, but it's not. It's lust. And so if you look at the biblical definition of love, one of the attributes is actually sacrifice. Sacrifice. He says, he has given himself for us. He gave all, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, 
don't check out on me here, but we're going to talk a little Leviticus. I know you guys were all, it's your favorite. You heard him talking about Leviticus, you're like, that's my favorite book. But in Leviticus chapter 1, 2, and 3, there are three sacrifices spoken of there. I'm going to turn there, you don't have to, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to do it for my own memory's sake. Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I got to say it in my head. It's like when you do the ABCs and you're trying to file things, you're like, A, B, C, D. I still have to do it. So he says there in uh, Leviticus 1, 2, and 3, there are three offerings. The burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. Now, there had different reasons for these offerings. But these are all offerings that were made in the Old Testament for fellowship. So a burnt offering is where you would take an animal, you would sacrifice it, and we burn on the altar. Uh, Another one would be the grain offering. You would take the grain from your fields. They didn't have money to put in the box. They had grain. And they would give the first fruits, and they would burn it on the altar. And they did that to offer up thanks to the Lord. And they would burn a portion, and then a portion would go to the Levites, who were the ones that were serving there in the temple, and the priest. They had to have some way to, to have food. And so God provided for them through that sacrifice. And then the third was a peace offering. And so these three offerings are positive offerings. They're offerings of worship to the Lord. They're not because sin has happened. They're not. But then if you go to, but what it says about all three of those offerings is that they were a sweet savor to the Lord. To him and his nostrils is like the sweet smell of barbecue in the summer. The smoke comes off. It's like going down to Rubles. They're smoking that meat and you're like, this is the best smell ever. Except to the Lord, that's, that's what he gets out of it. He's pleased with those offerings because he sees people that are wholeheartedly wanting to worship the Lord, with Him, with all that they are. Uh, their meat, their grain, and then a peace offering, a fellowship offering. So then in chapter 4 and 5 of Leviticus, let me get that out, is the sin offering and the transgression offering. Now the sin offering is an offering that's made... When you don't realize you've done something, but somebody calls you on it. They're like, hey, do you realize you just sinned against the Lord? No, I did not. We need to make a sacrifice. There's no like, hey, sorry, Lord, I repent, 1 John 1, 9. You know, there's none of that. There's like, you got to go to the temple, take an animal, slit its throat, wash it, have the Levites prepare the sacrifice. They got to go burn it on the altar. And there's all this ritual that goes along with it. Because without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. Do you see why Jesus is such an amazing blessing to us? Their whole life was making sacrifices because it didn't make them sin less. Hopefully they started to sin less, but it made them very busy dealing with their sin. And so then in chapter four, he has the sin offering. These are things, these are what we are, chapter five, it's, it, it's like a transgression. It's when we know we're sinning and we do it anyway. There's, a, there's an offering meant for that. So my point is, back in here in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, that sacrifice, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. We have peace with God because he has taken our sin upon himself and died in our place, and now we have peace with God. He says, Therefore, walk in love. So I'm going to turn to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. And the reason I'm doing this is because John in there describes the Lord 
He says in verse 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Interesting. You've heard people say, well, God's love. Right. He is love. He is truth as well. But my point is, is that if, if God is love and we can walk in that love, then we will be known as children of God because of the fruit that comes from our life. But then he says this. He starts this new section in verse 3 through 14. He says, but, anytime there's a but, it's like a contrast. And he's showing the contrast between those who are Christians, those who follow the Lord, disciples of Jesus, and the world. When I say the world, I don't mean just everybody else. I mean the world, anyone who, follow, who does not follow Jesus. So I guess I do mean everyone else. But my point is, like, anyone who does not follow Jesus is of the world, and they follow the world system, and they're given over to it. And so he says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Don't even talk about it. Fornication is just that. It's, it's the idea of illicit relationships, sexual relationships, outside of the confines of marriage. He says, and all uncleanness or covetousness. Now, what is covetousness? Does anybody know? Covetousness is wanting something that someone else owns that's not your own. It's idolatry is what he's going to say later. It's basically you're controlled by your desires. Fornication is the desire to have pleasure. Covetousness is the desire to have something that you see as good. The lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, right? The two of the three that Satan always throws at us. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And so these three things are not uncommon to any person. By the way, Jesus was tempted by all three of these things. Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he never sinned. He never gave himself over to the power of sin. He said no. And so what we have here is him listing these two things, and we'd say, well, why is covetousness in the same list as fornication? What's the big deal? Well, because both of them are the ability to let desires control us instead of the Holy Spirit. So he says there, let it not even be named among you as is, it's not fitting for saints to be covetous or to be in illicit sexual relationships outside the confines of marriage. And then he goes on and he says, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting. Now, this one really hit me this week, okay? Because jesting actually means able to turn a phrase easily. I'm really good at that. Somebody says something, I can twist it around and bring it right back. I like the yo-yo effect. My mouth gets ahead of my brain or uh, the Lord, you know. And so able to turn easily. Now I think about that. Many people can turn any conversation into something perverted. Maybe you guys don't know anybody like that. Maybe you've never been like that. I have. I mean, here's the deal. I, I was a, a teenage boy at one point. Now, that's not an excuse, but the reality is, is what Scripture says, he says, let it not be named among you. It's not fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking. That's not small talk. That's just talk that's not edifying. It's not building up for other believers. It defiles you. 
And he says, nor coarse jesting. Coarse is the idea of something that it's like, it's rough. It's like, that gal talks like a trucker, you know? You know, the stuff you'd hear on the CB radio. And, and that many times, uh, he says, it's not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So he contrasts these things. He says, don't be talking foolishly. Don't be coarse jesting. Uh, don't, don't be talking with filthiness. It's not fitting, but rather, instead, use your life, use your mouth to give thanks to the Lord. If you're giving thanks to the Lord, it's hard to talk filthy. It just is. Or when you do that, it's convicting to you. You know, it's, you get to that point. And so he says these things are not fitting. Now, when I became a believer, the first thing that I had to do is, in many cases, I had to break off some friendships for a time. I was not able to be around those people because it was, you, become, you are who your friends are. And at the time, I didn't have enough of the Bible in me to know what was okay and what wasn't. I wasn't discerning. So I was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to distance myself. I'm going to spend some time with the Lord and with people that love the Lord. And I'm going to be encouraged. And then at the point that God called me to be okay with being in those friendships again, He had built me up enough to where I could kind of tell what, what was okay and was not by the Spirit. But what I want to talk about for just a minute is many of us already know that. We know what things are okay to say. We know, um, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, making perverted jokes. We know that filthiness is not good. But what I would like to say is that many times we don't realize that though we don't say them, we still do entertain ourselves with them. And what I mean by that is, and, and I still fall into this camp, many times I'll be flipping through the channels and I'll let someone on TV say something that I would never say around my family or around anyone else. And so I'm not saying it, but I am condoning it. And so it's a very tricky thing. And it's not about legalism. It's just about what you absorb yourself with. We talked about this, this Bible reading. Absorbing ourselves with the truth is to be able to combat the lies. But you shouldn't have to, in your own home, combat lies. You shouldn't be pumping lies into your home. And it's very hard because you may be watching a show that's just fine and well, but the commercials. And so we have to be on guard all the time. And that's where we'll end up today. But before I get there, let's go ahead and uh, continue on with what the passage says. I'll get off on my tangent. Verse 5, he says, For this you know. These are things that you ought to know as a believer. He says, This you know, that no fornicator, no unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not partake in these things with them. And so that's harsh words, right? That's heavy. No one who is a fornicator, no one who is an unclean person, no one who is covetous, all these things are, are idolatry, worshiping something or someone, or a relationship, or an action, or pleasure in the place of God. But let's not stop there. Because if we would all truly think about ourselves, don't think about someone else that you know. That's always a temptation. Think about yourself. I don't know anybody in here that that... I know in my own self, all three of those things get me. That means that that's bad news. No fornicator. No unclean person. Nor covetous. 
No one who's an idolater. I've been guilty of all four of those. Okay? That's, that's the bad news. The good news is that no man is clean. No man is good apart from trusting in Jesus to make them clean. When, uh, when they were at the table, and it was on the night that Jesus was uh, giving the, this meal, and in John 13, he, he, he stands up from the table after they're all sitting there um, eating the Lord's Supper. He stands up from the table and he takes his, his clothes off, it, not his clothes off, but he girds himself at the waist with his tunic. And he, he basically took on the form of a slave. If there was a man in your house in Jesus' day that had on this certain outfit that he basically put on himself, and they would, he was the lowest of the low servants in the house. He would get down on his knees and he would wash each person's feet as they came in. He would wash their feet. Now, that's one thing in our society, it wouldn't be so bad. I mean, many of you are like, that's creepy. But it wouldn't be so bad as it was in Jesus' day where they're walking down streets in sandals, Air Jerusalems, and you know what they're walking with? They're walking with animals. Animals don't stop and use the toilet. They, they just go on the road. So there's not dust and grime and everything. There's poop. And so Jesus was watching, washing poop off of his disciples' feet. And so as he's washing these feet... He tells them, and he starts washing Peter's. And of course, Peter has to say something because he always corrects the Lord. That's a good idea, right? God was gracious with him. But he said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Absolutely not. I'm following you. If anything, I'll wash your feet. Well, if you should have done that, you should have done it when I came in the, in the house, just like that happens at everyone else's houses. But what, what he said was, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. He said, okay, well, then wash my whole body. He was always flip-flopping. He's like, don't wash me. Okay, wash all of me. He says, you have no need that I would wash your whole body. You only have need that I wash your feet. If a man's feet are cleansed, then his whole body is clean. Now, obviously, we know that physically that's not the case. You can wash someone's feet, and they can be completely filthy still. But the point is, is that if we wash your feet, your way, the way in which you walk, your whole life will be clean. And the way in which we walk is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one uh, can come into heaven without walking with him. And so the reality is, is that what he was writing here is that it, no one that, that it continues in these sins. This is not talking about slipping up once in a while. This is talking about a lifestyle that is habitually living in sin and not repenting. God says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Actually, if you turn to the left, Galatians chapter 5, he already wrote about this and what we have studied. Is it 5 or 6? Okay, here we go. Galatians 5 verse 19. He says, these are the works of the flesh and they are evident. They're, they're t- they are seen, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice, the idea being continually practice, these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It, it, the fruit proves the root. 
If you say you're a follower of Christ and you continue in these sins, I'm going to say, no, you're not. You're going to say, stop judging me. And I'm going to say, I didn't. The word of God did. That's what God's standard is. But then he says in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. They have put those things to death. Or the idea is, is they are continuing to let God convict them of those things and they are willing to lay those things down. Jesus said, if you would seek to keep your life, you will lose it. But if you will lose your life or what it was for my sake, you'll get to keep it for eternity. Many times the things that we get convicted about and we see in Scripture, we're like, I can't live up to that. Well, you're right. First of all, you can't. Those were all fruits of the Spirit that he listed in verse 22 on. Those were fruits of being surrendered to the Holy Spirit, being willing to to submit yourself to his control versus the controls of your desires versus the controls of your flesh. And so he says, therefore, do not be partakers with those who practice such things. I found this quote, and I've kind of misquoted it, but I wanted to just say it. Warren Wearsby said, The reality of our faith is proven by a life of obedience. There are many who will tell you that the reality of your faith is proven by miracles and exciting worship services that things go nuts and, and an experience of some sort where God just tells you something. And while those things are the case, true obedience many times is not shown with fireworks. Uh, true, true faithfulness to the Lord is proven by a life that's willing to be obedient. And many times we're, we're looking for more than that, and it's not. You know, uh, Obedience is something that is all too often kind of uh, made not that important, but obedience is the key to faith. And it takes faith to obey, so they're kind of self-fulfilling. So, he says there in verse 8, For you were once darkness... Now, in Galatians, what we had just read, he said, of such were some of you. He listed out all these sinful things, and he says, you guys used to be this way. So he's not saying to the person that's never walked with the Lord, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying to the Christian, these things ought not to be in your lives, and you used to be this way. So don't get you on your high horse, which many times is the case for churchgoers. Hey, I've got it all together. God saved me. He's pleased with me. No, he is pleased with you because you've trusted in his son, but only because of what his son has done. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He doesn't say now you shine light. He doesn't say now you um, are of the light. He says you are light. When you practice the things that are listed in the beginning of this chapter, Uh, you don't proclaim the light of Jesus. But when you walk with the Lord and your life becomes different than the world, guess what happens? Just by living, people are convicted because your life is different and they're convicted and they know that there's sin in their life. And at one point, if you'll be faithful and obedient to the Lord, they're going to ask you, like, what's different about you? Once they get over the whole thinking that you're holier than thou. They'll be like, what is, why do you have joy? Like so-and-so just died or, or whatever happened in your life. Your life's not perfect. Like, why do you have joy? Why do you have peace? 
and you'll be able to explain to them because I'm the Lord's. He's changed me. I walk according to a different drum now. He says, walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness. We read about that. Goodness is a, and he says, righteousness and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. He says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of, the dar- of darkness, but rather expose them. When we walk in purity, when our lives are changed, we're walking for Jesus. We're walking in his light and we become light. And number two, what happens when you turn on a flashlight in a dark room? It reveals things. Now, people don't like to be revealed when they're living in sin or or, or ashamed. But light reveals things. But it doesn't reveal things in an unloving way. Light reveals things in a loving way. Think about it. Jesus was approached by a bunch of Pharisees that caught a woman in the act of adultery. These Pharisees were revealing her sin, no doubt, but they were doing it in an unloving way. But when they brought her to Jesus in broad daylight in the town square, Jesus looked at them and he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. See, he, they were shining their light on her and he said, that's fine, but let's shine the same light on the rest of you. Hey, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, they, they all knew that they weren't without sin. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to go to the temple and make sacrifices. So he shined his light on them and said, Hey, look, you're all equally sinners. Let's all repent together. Now, what you find is that they all walked away, and she stayed, and he said to her, He said, Hey, where's your accusers? She said, They left. He goes, Neither do I accuse you. Neither do I call you out on your sin. But he said this, Go your way and sin no more. Walk away from that. Stop it. Don't you know how much I love you? I've got better for you. Stop examining. And to the Pharisees, he's saying, stop examining everybody else. Examine yourselves. And if you'll examine yourselves, you won't have to go drag people out of their homes. They'll be convicted by your very presence in their lives. We don't have to do the work of the Holy Spirit. He does it by himself. We don't have to point out people's sins. They're already ashamed of them. Otherwise, they wouldn't hide. It's how it works. The Lord wants to deal with you personally. And as he does that, guess what happens? That light magnifies. So he says this. Verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't be partakers in it. But rather expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And by your very lifestyle, you can do that. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, he kind of paraphrases, and he explains that this verse was about Jesus. He says, awake you who are asleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So, don't sleepwalk, Christian. Don't sleepwalk. Wake up. Don't be just going on cruise control like you always have. God has a new path for you to walk on, and you have to walk. 
When you decide to go somewhere and you have a destination, you have to go there on purpose. You can't just go, hey, I'm going to go to Farmington and just grab the first road you see. You might get lucky, but in the Christian life, that doesn't happen. You have to decide to follow Jesus. Haven't you heard the song? I have decided to follow Jesus. I love that song. It's been in my head all week. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. But then there's the next one, and this is where the test comes in. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. See, it's one thing to decide to follow Jesus. It's another to decide to follow Jesus even if no one else is going to go with you. We are a society of followers. That's what you do on Facebook. You follow people, right? Right? You click a little follow button. You want to know what they have to say. You don't want to know what they're doing. You follow them. There's no button to follow Jesus. You have to make a conscious decision to do that day in and day out. So he says, don't sleepwalk. Verse 15, see then, don't sleepwalk, he says, but see then, you can only do that if the light's on, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as foolish, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Circumspectly, how many of you guys use that in your daily talk? I don't. But I looked it up because I was, a few years ago, I was at a men's Bible study where my pastor was teaching the study. He taught this very passage. And I was like, man, there was something that word, like, what's that mean? So I looked it up. And I turned it sideways. I wrote it in my Bible. It says, circumspectly, carefully, and with exactness. In other words, to be aware of your surroundings. God's word is a way to be aware of our surroundings. I've been trying to teach uh, Lucy this scripture this week from Psalm 119. It says, Your light, Lord, is a lamp unto my path and a light unto my feet. Well, Lucy doesn't know what those words mean, so I gave her uh, the mic version. I said, God's word is a flashlight to help me see where I'm going when it's dark. So we're trying to memorize that. God's word is a flashlight to help me see where I'm going because it's dark. And so... The reality is, is God's word is the way to walk circumspectly. He says, see then that you, by our definition, walk carefully and with exactness. See then that you walk and you are aware of your surroundings. The idea would be the difference between someone walking through Walmart staring at their cell phone versus somebody walking through Walmart looking around to see what's going on. God wants us to be aware of our surroundings. Now, spiritually speaking, we can't use our eyes. We talked about that at men's Bible study. The Christian doesn't walk using their five senses. We walk by faith and not by sight. So if God said it in his word that we need to be aware of it, then we do. And we need him to reveal when there are things in our lives we need to be aware of. He says, don't walk as fools, but as wise. Redeem the time. Make proper use of it because the days are evil. How do we make proper use of the time? How do we do that? So I, I found a scripture in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. A couple of books to the right. After Hebrews, there's James and 1 Peter 4. He says this. He says, But the end of all things is at hand. 
Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Hey, there's one way that we can walk aware of our surroundings. Prayer. Spending time with the Lord. He says, be serious and watchful. The idea is the idea of, of having someone... In the, that day, they would have a city with walls, and then they would have watchtowers. Now, like the Watchtower Society of the Mormons, but, or the, the uh, not the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, but there's watchtowers. And so up in those towers, they'd have guys hopefully not sleeping... Many of us are sleeping, but God is calling us to be watchmen on the gate. And as they sat in those towers, they would have an offensive weapon, maybe a bow and arrow, but they would also have their eyes open and they'd be watching to see what's going on. So we can do the same thing by being watchful in our prayers. We do not have the perspective of sitting in a watchtower, but who does? The Lord he watches over our lives, and so we pray, Lord, be watchful over us, even as we sleep at night. Uh, keep watch over our homes, keep us safe. And above all things, verse 8, he says, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. So, number one, we can be prayerful and watchful. Number two, we can have a fervent love for other believers. Invest in them. Get involved in their lives. Pray for them. And love them like Christ loves you, because love will cover a multitude of sins. If we can all love one another, that means on the day that we mess up and we sin against them, they might be more willing to give us some grace because you you know, they, they can be reminded by the Lord or whatever that, hey, this person loves me all the time and they messed up one time. Love covers a multitude of sins. And then we can be gracious to one another. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Do things for others without complaining about it. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's gifted you in ways that only you know about. Use that gift to bless the body of Christ. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If you, got something, if you don't have something nice to say from the Lord, don't talk. You know, be careful in what you use your tongue to say. I'm working on that one, Ronnie. <laughs> If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that's how we can walk soberly, just a few ways. And there are many more. He says, therefore, do not be unwise understand what the will of the Lord is. We're going to stop there today because next week we're going to talk about walking in harmony. But what I want to close with, he says, do not be unwise. Do not be ignorant. Wisdom is knowing what to do and putting it to practice. Knowing is one thing. That's just having a bunch of information. But unless you do it, you're not walking wisely. And he says this, and I love this phrase. He says, but Instead of being unwise, understand what the will of the Lord is. How do you understand something? I heard somebody say it this way. God gave you a brain. Use it. Use that brain. One of the things that first got me involved in Parkland Chapel in Farmington was there was this guy at the end of the hallway, and he sat in his office, and I've probably told this story a million times, so I'm sorry. But this is how God impacted me in a mighty way. I always felt like going to the church I was taken to after about middle school, that in order to believe in God and have faith, that I had to shut my brain off and check it at the door, like put it in a little deposit box till I came back out. Okay, 
You're entering the brain-free zone. That's what I felt like. But what he was telling me, as he was just talking to me in regular conversation, was you don't have to check your brain at the door. And he quoted Isaiah, which blew me away because I didn't even know anything about Isaiah. He said in Isaiah chapter 1, it says, Come let us reason together. Though our sins were as scarlet, he's made us white as snow. So that's a reasonable faith that God has cleansed us of all unrighteousness. He cleanses us when we confess sin to him. And so in this case, he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. You cannot understand anything unless you use your mind. And God has given us a brain. Therefore, I don't believe that he wants for us to shut it off. Okay? So if that's the case, how do we understand what the will of the Lord is? If, I think Peter said it on the video. He said, you know, many people want to trust the Lord, but they don't know what God said. So how can they trust what they don't know what he said? Romans chapter 10, and I promise to actually close. Romans uh, chapter 10. Got to find it. It's in here, I know it is. Verse 8, Romans 10, 8 says, But what does it say? Speaking of the word of God, it says, The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And I like that because many times we've heard of the Lord, but we don't know him more deeply because we don't know what his word has to say about him. And how shall they hear without someone who proclaims it or a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings. The idea, the word there means gospel or good news of good things. So what he's saying there is we cannot believe unless we know, unless we've heard the word of truth. And many times we put that on the pastor or the, the preacher, or the evangelist or the worship leader, but it's on us. Many times we don't believe because we don't know what to believe. But God's given it to us. In this day and age, we have it all. We can carry it with us wherever we go. This thing fits in my back pocket. It's not even inconvenient. You can get it on your phone. You have it with you. So the idea is, he says, don't be unwise. Understand. Use your mind to know what the Lord has for you. Understand what his plans are, what his will is. And then you won't be given over to your will which I don't know about you guys, but my will changes with the wind. But if my will, if I'm praying, Lord, your will be done and not my own, then my will stays pretty steady. And, and in, in nine, ten years into my faith, the Lord has taken what used to be this, where I was like, I'm following you, Lord. Uh, I'm going to do this thing. And then and, and constant, like a roller coaster of emotion and guilt and shame and then faith and repentance and but over the years, it's not that the roller coaster has gone away. It's just that the, the hills aren't as high or the, 
hills are, I stay up there a little bit longer and then the, the valleys aren't nearly as low as they used to be. God's bringing me closer to his heart. And so, you know, may we be those who would walk no longer in the foolishness of our own hearts, but in the plans of his will, because we know what he wants for us. So let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your holy word. We confess to you that we don't always understand it. I know I don't. You've shown us today a contrast between what we are to be, imitators of God, and what we used to be and uh, what we should no longer be partakers of. Father, I pray that you would search our hearts, each one of us, myself included. Peer into the deepest recesses. Lord, shine your light on our spots that need to be revealed. The truth reveals and love heals. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would work on each one of us. We're all at different stages. Father, bring us to unity through us walking in purity before you as individuals. And may that affect the outlook and, and you know, just how we live in a way that affects each other. I thank you so much for this word, and I pray that you would help us no longer to walk in uh, foolishness of our own hearts, but to walk carefully and exactly as we trust ourselves to your word. You've given us instruction. Help us to live by it. Help us to walk in it. Help us to walk as we have been called. In Jesus' name, amen.